Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Mark Tanner, co-founder and CEO of Quilla. In this episode, we talked about what it was like for Mark taking the leap from a cushy job at Google to starting his own business, why they built Quilla, the motivation behind it, and what's the big plan for the future. We also discussed Quilla's on and off relationship with a freemium plan of their product, how first impressions always matter, and churn and retention in the context of sales. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Mark is the CEO and co-founder of Quilla, a platform that allows you to design perfect proposals, quotes, client updates, and more in minutes. Prior to founding Quilla, Mark was a strategic partner development manager at Google, where he managed many of Google's largest book publisher partnerships and launched the Google Play textbook vertical. He was also responsible for launching the Google Play books, magazines, and Google Newsstand products. So, my first question for you, Mark, is what did it take for you to make the leap and resign from your cushy job at Google to start your own business? <laughs> so I was lucky, very lucky that I had some startup uh, experience before Google because it is a very nice, cushy, happy place to be. So I'd, I trained at university. I, had, I was lined up to go down the sort of management consulting path, but very luckily for me, um, it wound up by a few bits of luck at this ebook company, this was like 2008, and ebooks were finally exploding. The Kindle and the iPhone had come out in 2007, and this long promise of ebooks, which had been seriously talked about since the late 90s, finally was having its moment. And this ebook startup I was part of had this unbelievable first year that I was there, where we grew, I think, 5x, and life was amazing and everything was great. And then it quickly became increasingly clear that the particular bit of you know work that we were offering the market was becoming commoditized and heading towards zero. And it was incredibly lucky for me that my job was largely looking after publishers and, and book publishers. And I sort of had this fantastic connections across Australia and New Zealand of all the sort of local publishers and all their ebook arms and stuff like that, just as Google was looking for somebody to come in and do all that work for what became Google Play. So it was one of those, again, like a lot of luck in, in getting into a startup straight out of university. I think 2008, the startup scene in Sydney was 
really pretty non-existent and then very lucky to find my way into Google and had a few years in Sydney and then a few years in New York. Yeah, uh, it's definitely up and coming though, the Australian ecosystem, or at least for the last two, three years now, definitely some really good startups coming out of Aussie. But interesting, like you managed to find yourself in the right place at the right time to join Google. But yeah, you didn't really answer the question though. Of, uh, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I realized that as soon as I stopped. So I apologize. Yeah. I'll keep going. So yeah. I, I think that the, the thing that made it actually quite, there were two things that made it easy. One was that there was a girl and so I wanted to come back and she is now my, my wife and mother of my child. So that was a good move on Congrats. my behalf. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but the other one was that if I'm very honest with you, I actually probably even, even more, but one of the ones was that the great fun of those few years at Google was that there was this big battle between Android and iOS and who could launch the, the most content verticals and, and get the best apps and sell the most devices and do the best deals with carriers and, and all this sort of stuff. And it really was for those of us in the partnerships team who were doing these you know, uh, big deals, it was just awesome fun. And there were some huge deals to be done and quite complex negotiations and, and all that sort of stuff and even battling Amazon to some degree. But really by about 20, so I started at Google in 2010, by about 2013, both sides had won what they cared to win. Google won all of the distribution. Like Google had, I think, like 80% of the market and Apple won all the profits. They had 80% of the profits. <laughs> so it was this interesting thing that it wasn't an interesting job anymore. And so I was sort of a bit bored. And then I was also, I knew that I wanted to if not start my own company, be very early in a company again. And I could see myself whiling away the rest of my 20s inside Google being paid well, but not really doing anything. And so I was very happy to pull the trigger. And as I moved home, largely without a plan, I, I knew Dylan, my co-founder of, of Quilla. And, and so we, and we'd been talking about it, but it wasn't a lock at that stage. And there were some other ideas and, and plans and schemes as well. But I just knew that I wanted to get back in there and give it a go. Give it a go. Yeah. So that's, you felt you got the taste for it early on and then it was something that you just needed to get back to as well. I think definitely once you're an early stage startup and you see the excitement, you see the momentum, the movements, like there's something new all the time. When you get locked into something a little bit more predictable and like you say, getting towards the end of Google, a little bit less exciting because everything had been done already. Definitely, I can see the motivations there tilting towards it. And I think yeah. there was also a degree of some of the work I did at Google. I remember, so when I left Sydney to go to, to work for Google in the States, I was like, oh, wow, because all the deals in Sydney were like the local version of these international deals. Yeah. And all the international deals for media were done out of New York. And then you get there and you're like, oh, it's just the same. It turns yeah. out high level sales, <laughs> like sales is just sales. There's just more lawyers involved. And exactly. so it's, it's a realization yeah, sort of took, again, like it was still a lot of fun and very enjoyable, but it's when you're young and thirsty to learn, there's just no better way to do it than, than startup life, at least that I've found. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Quilla then, like uh, where did the idea come from? What's the motivation? What's the, the big uh, plan for the future? Yeah, so the core, so the core idea behind Quilla is that files and, and documents like, you know, Word, PowerPoint, PDF, just suck in the age of the web. So they were all, all wonderful tools that were all you know, built in the 80s and 90s, but the web allows you to do so much more. 
And so this, this sort of the idea behind Quilla and Quilla really all it is a way for anybody to create their sales and marketing collateral as beautiful, simple web pages that can push and pull data from your various sources of truth, can have analytics, can be interactive, can have a, a buying experience across the B2B side that's much more akin to e-commerce. And all of this sort of stuff, like all of the possibilities of the web, obviously it looks fantastic on mobile, blah, blah, blah. But all the possibilities of the web sort of only exist if you commit to and embrace the web. They don't exist in PDF land. And so really the idea came to my co-founder, Dylan. He was running his own little agency in Sydney. He would routinely pitch for work. He was working with, he was actually often worked for other big agencies like Ogilvy and Saatchi and Saatchi and others. And he would do his pricing in Excel and do his copy in Word and take them both into InDesign and then send out something beautiful in InDesign. And then the client would want a bunch of changes. So we'd come back and we'd put it all apart because InDesign is crap for that. And we'll keep doing this and kept being like, how do I make this sort of something that is, because he was doing, he was, he's a, a developer and a designer. And so he's like, how can I make something that's much more native to, to the kind of work that I actually do? Yeah. So we started hand coding websites for every proposal he did. Now these were pretty big projects he was working on, 50 grand or a hundred grand sometimes. But hand-coding a website is like a few days worth of work, even if you're very good at it. And the first sort of version of Quilla was like a bunch of bash scripts and, and eventually some level of like slightly productized parts. But really, the breakthrough came when he pitched um, the, the MD of Saatchi in Saatchi, New Zealand. He pitched him in the morning, had a phone call about the, the job in the morning, sent him a website in the afternoon, and then got a call that evening being like, how on earth did you do this? Did you turn around a website? Is this a product we can use? Uh, how do we do this ourselves? And yeah. Dylan had already had a product company before and so was <laughs> slightly reticent at the start to dive back in. But the more time he spent thinking about it, and this is around about 2012, the more he kept thinking like, you know, why on earth isn't there something? And so just part-time throughout 2013, he just started tinkering and building and, and had a, a better sort of prototype. And then he and I reconnected and then I quit my job and moved home and uh, we kicked things off properly in, in 2014. Very cool story. Yeah, uh, I was, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, like funny enough, over the weekend, I came across uh, a guy called Ted Nelson and uh, who's supposed to be one of the earliest inventors of the internet before Tim Lee Berners. And his whole sort of proposal and argument, I think, with uh, society even is, is today is that we made a mistake when we moved to the internet and uh, by just taking paper and putting it in a digital form, like you say, in the form of a PDF or a Google Doc, when the opportunities were so much more when it came to digital and what you could actually do with documents and sharing information. And he had this proposal that's uh, now claimed to be the biggest vaporware of our time, uh, Xanadu Basics, but was really about... How can you share and distribute information almost in the same light in which the brain works and the brain shares information and uh, gathers ideas? I thought it was an interesting concept, but then obviously, like I see there's some parallels in what you're trying to do is that you're trying to move away from the typical like Word doc or spreadsheet or and really trying to create this medium for people to create these proposals or get these messages across to their clients that are living, breathing elements as opposed to a fixed PDF that we used to send. Very interesting. Yeah. I think as you say that, I can't help but think of other impractical ideas like Esperanto and others that, that, that are wonderful on the surface of this perfect new language that will unite the world. But uh, I actually live around the corner from, from the, the Australian Esperanto Centre and it is always empty, I'm afraid. 
but but I do think that there is some magic in what some of these visionaries have and sort of can see. And I think, look, we've got an internal document uh, inside Quilla that my co-founder Dylan wrote, and he opens it with a quote from Wittgenstein, which is, the limits of my language are the limits of my mind or of my world. I can't quite remember the exact quote, but basically saying that if you don't have the words for something, it's, or if you don't have the mental model for something, it can be incredibly hard to express yourself and or to even have the idea itself. And I think, look, we are just one small part of the internet, but something that we truly believe is that the work that, you know, companies like Notion and Coda are doing internally for, for teams as they work between product and marketing and sales or trying to stay aligned and why does the doc, why does it need to be different docs, spreadsheets and, and numbers and data and then something different for copy and something different for something more sort of image-based or story-based as PowerPoint should be used as, why can't there be a, a mashup of those various things? And Quilla, we have a similar, we have approached it from a different mindset to some degree because ours have always been public-facing, external, externally-focused communication. Obviously, yeah. a lot of proposals and presentations and pitch decks. But it does come to the same truth, which is that the Microsoft monopoly has kept us in MS Office or, or, or its clone G Suite, which my time at Google, it was an explicit and known policy that Google was just cloning Office. I, I mean, think it that, is quite which obvious. Is, hey, like it's a great, like they've yeah. built a multi-billion dollar business off it, like all, all power to them. But, yeah. but I do think it is a limit. And I do think as people become more comfortable with the web, and also just to be frank, again, another high level, like I just, I do fundamentally disagree with him in that like, or not disagree, but, but more that the reality of how humans interact with technology is that it is very hard for them to have a huge break from, from a mental model that already exists. And you can see this in the design of a lot of software today. You often have to do things that even if it isn't the perfect way of doing it, you'll, if you can do something that is similar to something that already exists, a mental model that exists out there, it often can be a better way for getting adoption and make it easier for people just to get started. So I do think that entire breaks from the ways of doing things that tend to, in fact, be impossible. They need to evolve over time. And our hope is that uh, th- this time is now. Yeah, definitely. I think even like design, you're a big trend in skeuomorphism, trying to bring like the real world into the digital, like 100%. in all aspects. <laughs> so create things familiar for people to be able to adapt and uh, work with. Nice. Let's uh, dive into a little bit more detail here at Quiller and on the topic of the show, churn and retention. What's the team that you lead? What are you responsible for? Uh, and what is exciting you at the moment at the company? Yeah, I, I look after the, the business side. So, so my co-founder, Dylan, he's actually technically our CEO and I'm the COO. And he runs the, so the, the product and engineering and design parts of business. And I run our go-to-market side as well as our ops. So marketing, sales, success, support. What's going on and things that are exciting me? I think, so one of the things we, we talked about, obviously, is this year, uh, we've been steadily moving up market and we had a bit of a, a, a redesign and a reorg of how we think about success, which is something that I'm obviously very keen to talk to you about. And I'm excited by that. I'm also just generally excited that, to be perfectly frank, we had a marginally scary April with COVID, just a whole bunch of people who are on our month-to-month plans were like, ah, do I need this? 
And we had a couple of weeks there <laughs> that weren't very pretty in terms of churn. But since then, it's been, I think, fantastic. And I think that I think us, like a whole bunch of other sort of SaaS tools, have benefited from this. There is this sort of interesting shift that's happening societally as we all move to this working from home arrangement due to the horror of COVID and coronavirus. And I think that that's, it's been this interesting sort of shift to see how that sort of all happened. And I know across my friends and other SaaS companies that there's been this sort of this interesting trend that's a whole host of tools in that site have seen some real growth and real benefit. And we're certainly sort of part of that and trying to think to ourselves, like, how do we, you know, keep accelerating this trend? But I certainly think there's a macroeconomics of it all that's helping as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, like when it came to coronavirus and COVID, is this just accelerated the inevitable for a lot of companies. So that yeah. short-term churn that everybody saw, like a lot of those people were gone three months ago and you just didn't realize it yet. And they got a reminder when things came around. But definitely as well, likewise, I'm at Hotjar, like we saw a big dip, but then we also saw a really good recovery. And we're actually seeing better numbers now than we did pre-COVID due to the lights as well, like churn and retention actually made an improvement surprisingly. So you talked a little bit about as well, the pricing, and uh, we have talked about this a bit before the show, like you've experimented quite a bit with freemium, switching it on and off and the impacts that it had uh, on your business. Maybe you want to talk us through a little bit about this, like when did you first decide to start working uh, on your pricing? Like how did you start? Maybe let's start at what was your pricing on day one? What did you launch with? Yeah, so day one, we've we've had a big odyssey here. So <laughs> I might have to summarize various bits and pieces. But but day one, we had so we had a free offering, and then I think very much following the advice of a bunch of other founders, we we had some priced offerings, even though you know our pricing was pretty random. So I think it was I think it was day one, it was free ten dollars, twenty five dollars, all USD, obviously, and then relatively quickly it became free twenty five fifty. As our sort of as our various tiers, and I think in the early days, this isn't right for every company, but there is something useful about free in the early days, just in terms of, especially for us, like we had a at that time a relatively S of the SMB prosumery sort of product, and I think that in that sort of space, free makes a hell of a lot of sense, but also just like getting users and getting data makes a lot of sense, and so it really is quite. I think like just useful just to, to, to remove as much friction as is humanly possible on that path. And then I think there's, there's another truth, which is that if you are good enough to convert someone from free into a paid product, that I do think that tends to mean they are a relatively good customer and you can benefit from, uh, you can benefit from that and the impact on your churn can be good. That being said, we then experimented with what about a 30-day trial? What about a 14-day trial? What about a seven-day trial? And we ended up living on living mostly on the 14-day trial. And I think one of the things with regards to churn that we as we later came back to experimenting with freemium, one of the things about I think about freemium and churn that is incredibly obvious, but but still can slap you in the face a little bit is if all you're doing with freemium is offering some sort of feature-gated or uh, usage gated version of your base tier, you should expect to have like pretty high churn from that tier. As people say, I like this product, but I can also just have it for free and I lose a little bit of this or I maybe lose a bit of that. And that was certainly something that we saw a few times and was like, again, one of those sort of obvious sort of secondary impacts that kind of, to be frank, turned us off. There are a whole bunch of other things that, to be frank, that, that, that turned us off. And I'd say one of the most important ones for us was around activation which is just if you've got a 14-day trial, 
you're more likely to spend actually considerably more time in our instance in the first session clicking around and trying things and trying to make it work. And we just found just a real correlation between the amount of time that you spent in that first session getting out of our sort of tabula rasa problem. Obviously, we've done a whole bunch of work around that to try to make that better and faster and smoother, et cetera. But there is, I think, a real challenge on that side, but also this sort of challenge of if you go to freemium, then all of a sudden you see, oh, your activation is dropping a little bit, which is dropping your conversion rate. Because of free, you have this 14-day gate, therefore your sales cycle increases. And on top of that, your churn from your cheapest tier goes up, like, you know, not hugely, but goes up a bit. Like all of these compounding factors really do add up to not an awesome time for a few months after the transition, which is, I think, to be understood and expected. Um, and we've obviously got a bunch of nice benefits, like Quill is a lightly viral product. And, and certainly a whole bunch of people who, who have been on this podcast who are ex-Typeform uh, gave us a bunch of advice. Uh, Robert, one of the founders there, is, a, is an investor in Quilla. And so we spoke to that team a lot about how they thought about virality. And so we got a big boost to our virality, but at these, at these whole host of other costs as well. And so in the end, we've had this sort of hot, cold, on-again, off-again relationship with freemium. And it's currently cold and off, although I do think we do, we do look at it seriously as something that we probably will give another go to at some stage. I, but I kind of think that the important thing is how do you, well, one of the important things is like, how do you structure it in a way that, that your free product is awesome, is like is genuinely excellent and speaks to the core user group that you want to go after, but isn't necessarily like a, a, a sort of a derivative of your core product. Like it isn't some sort of lesser state of your core product. I think that path can work, but I think the best ones are ones where it's something that's slightly to the side that can drive an interesting upsell and cross-sell into your main product rather than necessarily being like a degraded version of your product. Yeah, that's an interesting concept as well. And I think to your point, freemium can work for certain types of businesses. And uh, I think the the point that you mentioned, well, I think Patrick Campbell talks about this a lot from Price Intelligently, or ProfitWell now, is that it's a uh, acquisition model and it's not a business model freemium. And when you think about it in like the context of maybe your business or Typeform or even Hotjar, freemium potentially does work well because you have the virality inherently built into it. So people share your documents, other people see them, people uh, respond to polls or to uh, see an incoming feedback widget on the website and ultimately brings and drives traffic. But there's a couple of challenges I think with come with these things is one is actually measuring that impact is often very difficult because a lot of it then becomes word of mouth, mm. which is inherently something that freemium does drive. But the other point you mentioned, which I thought was very interesting, I want to dive into a little bit more was, and this is something that I think Sean Klaus on one of the episodes mentioned that Atlassian found out in the early days when it came to retention was their activation period and retention, one of the biggest drivers and the most important things they ever found was the amount of time that a user spent in their first session was the biggest yes. like, correlation they had with uh, retention. And uh, how did you come to this realization yourselves? Like, how are you going about tracking it, measuring it? So to be honest, so first of all, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty. We, we weren't paying as, we were very good at tracking our activation metrics. And as we went to explore this, in a, we, did, we did a retro after we actually decided to kill freemium again. We did a retro on it and we're trying to understand what actually really hurt our activation rate. 
And the, from memory, I'm pre pretty certain this is the case, that the most important part was uh, the time spent. For, and honestly, it was literally just time of session. Like it wasn't anything more interesting than that. But, but the, the longer you spent had a much higher correlation to you coming back for a second session. That second session would be closer to the first session. And that second session uh, would have a greater chance of a third session, blah, 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 and of you hitting the activation you know, goal that we had. And I think, to be honest, it was just, just you know, again, we track all these things you know, in all the various tools, whether it's amplitude or kiss metrics, whichever one. But we, I think we, just, we, we had that data and we, had, we went through and tried to look for all the things as to what was statistically significant. It was quite clear that one was critical. I think cliche, like cliche, but first impressions matter. It matters yeah. that you have a nice time there. And I think Quilla, we have this sort of mantra across my team on the sales side, especially if just help them have a great time, which is just generally speaking, we only get one go around on in this life and uh, no one's here to have a bad time. Just treat people with respect and help them have a great time. But I think that's also incredibly true with onboarding. So you're here, you've all the various things you could be doing in the world. You've decided to sign up to Quilla today and have a play around. We shouldn't treat you or your time with disrespect. We should try to, how do we make it as easy and as nice as possible to get started? Now I say this, we still suck. I wish we could be better. And I'm, it's a journey and you always keep doing it. And you're always going to suck in your own way. It's yeah, exactly. All founders feel a, a real mixture of incredible pride and also sort of embarrassment about their products, I think. But yeah. Nice. Yeah, definitely. I think that like that first uh, session matters. And I think this is actually a theme that's come up a lot in the podcast is that concept of urgency and uh, mm. like in the light of sort of uh, freemium versus uh, trial, like I think with the trial, like you alluded to as well, is that you have the sense of urgency and like your first session is like probably the most attention your customer or your user is ever going to give you. Because like you say, we all have other things to be doing and we've decided at that point in time to pay attention. So trying to maximize that time, I think is obviously in your best interest always and trying to not like try and unnecessarily rush people through processes, but making sure that they're getting the value out of that first session, they're paying attention and you're making the most of that attention while they're there. Jana Basto as well, this episode comes up a lot in conversation, but they did a very interesting thing. Like you mentioned as well, you tried and tested with your different pricing, your trial lengths. And they actually used the trial length and they gamified the trial process to actually get people to take specific yes. key actions. And they actually saw conversion increase and activity increase by actually shortening their trial period. And I think partly due to the nature of, like we say, you've created an extra bit of urgency that people now need to get the most out of their time that they have. Uh, whereas freemium, you're like, ah, oh, I have all the time in the world to get things done. And then you never get things done. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, so now in the company as well, I believe as well from your background that you're leading the sales team. And I think like we talked about this a little bit just before starting is that like sales itself as well has a big influence on churn and retention directly and indirectly. And I'm interested to see like how you see this now within the company as you try to move a little bit more up market, as you start to work with a sales team and start to build it out. Like, How are you thinking about uh, churn and retention in the context of sales? Yeah, it's huge. And I think that, look, to tack back to that initial idea of just help them have a good time, I think that if people, if we're lucky enough to have someone become a customer of Quilla, we have to, be, to treat them well and give them a good experience from demo on and then all through 
how we think about interacting with them, the handoff from sales to success, but if it's a, if it's a particularly large deal, how that works and taking the time to figure that out and, and make that a good experience. There is so much in sales these days that can be split out into different silos and sort of have this part is owned by marketing and then this part is owned by an SDR team and then this part is handled by AEs and then you get handed off to a customer success rep who might specialize in onboarding and then you get handed off to an account manager. And that is just a shit experience. Like that is just, (laughs) that is five sort of five or six touch points you've gone through. And so each time, that being said, there there are real benefits because each of them can specialize and you can turn it into a machine. And if you've ever read High Output Management by Andy Grove, it speaks to some degree of this sort of how do you make a factory out of some things and what are your, there's a whole sort of interesting arguments for a path like that. But I think that if you actually come back to what actually matters to the customer and what is an excellent experience there and how do you handle that? You, you need to have sales reps that, that do a relatively large amount of work. And I think you also need to have success reps that do a relatively large amount of work. And that, now look, maybe in time, I'll be singing for a different song sheet as I, as we, Quill is only 50 people. Maybe when we're 150, uh, if we're so lucky to get there or 500 or whatever, maybe I'll be singing a different tune but i do think that there is something important about that because you know i am a believer that at the end of the day software it's just it's all bought and used by humans and it is a very human experience and i think that the more you try to abstract the humanity away from it and sort of have it be a perfect spreadsheet and a perfect formula which like listen you know I love living in that world too, but I do think that the more you push away from that, the, the more pain you tend to have, uh, and also the harder it is to get to, to solve problems quickly. Uh, whereas if you do have good relationships and you do the work and you can do that, and not, now obviously there's a caveat here, like this can't work at a certain price point. Although I say that, and I now know that we, we recently empowered our customer support team to take on SMB success. So we've got a success team who largely looks after our, like our mid-market and enterprise customers. But we sort of said to support, there's no reason you can't use these tools and you can't have some goals and numbers around this and then and, and we even give like you know, targets and rewards and all this sort of stuff. And they took to it with relish and have done so much fantastic stuff, uh, including trialing like different versions of live chat and, and different onboarding flows and offering like training webinars and I think so. I do think you can actually do a fair bit of this stuff at at some degree of scale, but really, I think across sales, it really matters for us to have that sort of great experience coming into Quilla. Then having a good period where you, if you've done sales well, you hopefully have a champion or two inside the org, and like handing that off to success to make sure that champion stays a champion is so incredibly critical. And then I think obviously as success works with them and tries to understand like what reasons they've had for coming on board and then does onboarding and training is it's also sort of about like how do we find other champions in this sort of mix and how do we nurture those ones that are already there such that you have ideally two or more uh people inside the org who, who love you and who understand you and who can be champions internally for you and that's all the sort of foundational stuff that you need that allows you a not to have the company churn but, but B, for it to have the potential to, to really expand in a nice, natural way. 
For sure. And that's also another one of those things we hear quite a lot on the show is that the concept of the champion churning leading to your customer churning and how important it is to manage those relationships. The, the experience you highlighted is also like it echoed a lot with me uh, being a shitty experience because it's definitely something I've experienced uh, being a buyer of different pieces of software and being handed over from rep to success manager. And eventually you, you lose track and you get tired of explaining your goals to people like because everyone always yes. starts with the same conversation again. So I just want to get a recap of your goals. Has nobody written this down anywhere? Do you not be uh, <laughs> new? So definitely, I think it's something that can be a big improved uh, process all around. Cool. And then, so your sales team now, like, uh, so you're 50 people as well. What does the, the company look like as well? Let's get a little bit of a picture. So you mentioned you're responsible for the go-to-market. So obviously, sales success, marketing side of things. Like, How is the team split up and structured at the moment between engineering products uh, and the rest? So we have, it's still about half, I would say, between the product team and the go-to-market team. We are, look, we feel like, I don't want to, again, more cliches, but we still feel very early in our product journey. There's yeah. so much that can be done with regards to the way that documents, and so that especially like public-facing documents, can be made to be much more native to that sort of web experience and really treat treat them with the same level of like art and science that that web pages and even things like say real top of funnel things like, like landing pages where you have so much science in there and actually a fair degree of art about like how to like take these leads and take them to this conversion point of you know, whatever putting in their email or signing up or whatever and then you look at the bottom of funnel like a proposal and there's just none of it it's just this crappy pdf or a powerpoint deck or like an email or worse and it's just, there's no ability to learn and get better. There's no ability to try to optimize things. There's, there's no ability for like natural dynamic upselling, all that sort of stuff. There's no intelligence. It's a really rubbish experience. And I, we feel like there's a, there's a heap more work to be done there. So we still invest heavily in product. We just made a terrific hire as our new head of engineering, um, this guy, Ben, who's ex Atlassian and ran Confluence there for a while and then ran their growth team for a while. And so just tremendously excited to work with him. Okay. So yeah, we're still very much on that sort of side. Our go-to-market team though, I should say, is like, so as you can hear from my accent, I'm, I'm based in Sydney. All of our design and almost all of our engineering and product team is based in Sydney, but almost all of our go-to-market team is remote. And so we've been remote from day one. Uh, I know Hotjar is obviously a hyper remote company because we're a little half. Our support, success, sales, and marketing teams, you know, are all are all that they don't work at our office, and it's been an interesting journey, but a fantastic one, and obviously one that's benefited us a lot as we've moved into this crazy world this year, where you know this is, and to be frank, you know, we still had to get better, like everybody else, it was still a shock to our system, but yeah, I think it's been very powerful for us to say where are our customers? Most of them are in North America, and a whole bunch are in Europe, and there are some in Asia, and like how do we? have people positioned to be able to offer excellent support and success and sales and whatever the relevant sort of need is across every every market. Yeah, absolutely. For myself now as well, starting a new company, like it's remote first from day one. I think having lived through both, working in an office and working remote, seeing the benefits from remote, like I think maybe the challenges get like when you say when you get to the four or 500 mark and then it becomes a little bit more difficult communication. But I think either way, like if you're in a building, if you're not at that point, you probably need to have multiple locations anyway. So 
I think remote is definitely the future. And uh, for me, I wouldn't want to go back to working in an office ever again. Uh, <laughs> just too much good comes from it, and especially now having a little one at home, like being able to uh, eat lunch, uh, dinner and breakfast with the family. Like it's an amazing experience as well. Agreed. Cool. Um, so we're running up on time actually, and I wanted to ask one question that I ask every guest uh, that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company and general retention is not doing great at all. And the CEO has come to you and has asked to turn things around for the company. You've been given 90 days to prove some results. What would you want to be doing with your time in those first 90 days? I am going to... I. I'm going to lean to a tactic that, that I am incredibly excited to try out at, at some point. I am almost certain it would have no impact in 90 days. So I'm, I'm sorry, too bad. I'm just going to ignore that part of the question. But the one that I am absolutely the most enamored with at the moment, and I actually mentioned this at the start just before we were chatting, is, is one that I've just noticed recently and started thinking about, which is so... Our sales team has a book club that we do each quarter and, and last quarters, this one is the Challenger Sale, a classic. Last quarters was Influence, which is the psychology of persuasion, uh, I think is the, the sort of the, the subtitle. And one of the main chapters they have inside Influence is like commitment and consistency. And there is this sort of core thing of once you've made a public commitment to something, there is this real internal drive to appear to be and to be consistent with what we've already done. So like once we've already taken a small stand towards something, every time you encounter that same thing again, you really want to double down on it. And as we were talking about this, I kept in the sales team weekly, I kept thinking more and more about just the glorious machine that is Salesforce. And so if you've ever been to a Salesforce you know, event, whether it's so they've got you know, obviously huge, ludicrous Dreamforce, but then there were just hundreds of them throughout uh, of other sort of events that they run across the year. But if you go to one of their sort of big American events, like the, the, the headline speaker is Oprah or someone, and then maybe it's, maybe it's Benioff. But then it's, in fact, no, Benioff wouldn't do this. It's, it's the second top speaker is a customer. And then the third's a customer and the fourth is a customer and the fifth is a customer. And then it's Benioff. And then it's another customer. And then it's like Deepak Chopra. And then it's another customer, VP product, customer, VP engineering customer. And like all of these customers come into this sort of space and they are all, they've given, they're given hair and makeup, they're giving speech training, they have beautiful slides that have been nicely designed for them. It's being filmed at the end, they edit the film, but this beautiful video they can share on social media. And it's them getting up in front of a thousand people and saying, here is how wonderful Salesforce is. And then they like go and share that to like their Facebook friends and their Twitter communities and their LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff. And like you have made this huge multifaceted public commitment to Salesforce and it is, they've got you. You're not churning after that. Like you, can't, you have now taken this in to be part of your identity. I am somebody who is like a, what are they called? Trailblazer. I'm a Salesforce trailblazer. They've got so many levels of this sort of stuff. And I know that inside Salesforce, they, you know, those people who are sort of those advocates, those champions, they are spoken to by the success teams and they know when they're about to move somewhere. And if they move somewhere, A, they obviously do the work to find, make sure they've got second, third, fourth champions inside the org before they go. But then B, when they move somewhere, well, like 
of course that company is going to become a Salesforce company. You've got someone who's coming on board who has aligned themselves publicly with Salesforce. And I so look, 90 days, probably deeply spurious as to whether that would have any effect whatsoever. But I do think that that is one that I've just been thinking about is this idea of, and maybe it's okay. So to bring it back, maybe a simpler way would be doing something like, hey, you gave us a nice NPS score. Hey, please leave a review for us on whatever, G2 Crowd or Captera or something. And even that's like a, it's a small public statement. But again, it is something public. And then, and then can you encourage them to share that so, you know, on LinkedIn or something? That's maybe a bit of a half-assed idea. But there is, again, there really is something meaningful about saying, I am part of this movement. Like, I am part of this area. This is part of, part of who I am. And I, again, this is a little bit of a half thought through idea, but it is one that I'm very excited about and one that I would love to try at the right point of time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Salesforce has definitely done an incredible job of that. And uh, it definitely shows in their ret- retention numbers and their growth of the business. Unbelievable. Seen, like, yeah, amazing. And it's also unbelievable that the software is like just so out of date and still you can't believe that it's 2020 <laughs> and people are still using it. But there's obviously that's what leads you to think there's other things that are at play and working for them. And this might be one of those things. Last question then. What's one thing today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your business? Hmm. I think the most important one is a, a better understanding. And I would I say this, even now we don't have a perfect understanding, but a much better understanding of how like internal virality works and, and, and in product virality and the kind of thing that allows, obviously we live in a, in, inside the Sydney startup ecosystem, the, the, the big shadow is cast by Atlassian. But even if I look inside some of those other companies I talked about earlier, I think Notion has amazing, amazingly designed in-product virality. And I think, obviously, Slack is fantastic at it. But Atlassian is just a weapon at this thing that will just start in one area and then become really just deeply, heavily used. And then every new person gets added on. Oh, you can just join and be a viewer for free and and whatever else. And I even say Figma does this a bit as well. But I would say that the way we thought about expansion was a very sort of blunt like instrument. And I think the way you can think about this now with how thoughtful you can be with product and the various loops and all that sort of glorious stuff that really was a, re- I think it really was a revolution in thinking about how you can drive that sort of in-product virality. And obviously external, outside of, that, that sort of virality that drives to new customers versus driving deeper inside the org is also wonderful and great. But I, I wish I'd had, we'd had a better thought on that because I do think that if you can architect your product to embrace that and work well for that from the start, that can be very magical. It's a big if because I, I don't think it's a given that you can always do it. Yeah. I do think that you, if you can, you really should. And if you can make it work, it works for sure. True. 
Awesome, Mark. It was great chatting you to, with you today. Is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of that's coming up uh, with what you're working on at Quillo? Honestly, I think nothing major. Uh, we've got a bunch of we've got a bunch of exciting stuff coming up, but nothing we're ready to announce, uh, break any news on just yet. But obviously, I sincerely hope all of them come and, and check out Quiller and have a nice first experience and let me know how we can improve our onboarding because, you know, much as I, we, we, we try to make it nice, we're always trying to learn and, and do even more. So if you can and you want to shoot me a note, I'm mark at quiller.com. Shout out for making it to the end of the podcast. Um, and I would always love to hear any feedback or thoughts people have about how we can make our experience or our product better. Very cool. Yeah, thanks. I, I mentioned to you as well, I'm definitely going to check it out. I think I, this morning, yes. I used an old service and just realized it's uh, it's now 2020 and uh, need to make some changes. So thanks so much for joining. Uh, wish you best of luck now going forward. Thank you very much, mate. You too. Bye. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.